0: has roger
1: smith rsvp yet wall street i went to wall street to get seriously rich but i didn't get rich Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been there. I love the entertainment business. Done and that. I'm being hired by a company called Carolco Pictures. And that. The night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just
0: about everything else you can imagine. I
1: thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He
0: knew a lot of famous My people.
1: experience with Orson Welles, Striz. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's as talking. Of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast. Who the is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations.
0: In this episode, Roger explains film libraries how old movies make new money for people over and over and over again. It's Hollywood's favorite rerun. Also, Edgar Bronfman, Taylor Swift, and how the music business is corrupt? Could that really be? But first, about film catalogs and who owns them, I had a colorful question. I just want to know, as the guy who founded the Criterion Channel, what did you think of when Ted Turner wanted to colorize all the black and white uh, movies that he bought?
1: I was 100% in favor of
0: it. You were? You Unlike, thought they'd be more commercial or people I said, would see them?
1: I said, excuse me. He's not destroying the black and white negative. He's making it available to a huge audience of my daughters and and slightly older generation. Boy, that you
0: were in a you were in a uh, total minority, minority then that because was...
1: these people were these people are fools. What's <laughs> what is wrong with having an alternate? I won't watch it. Other people won't watch it. But 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 millions of people will, and uh, you haven't. The third man in well, color. Well, there, yes. I mean, I don't want to see a colorized version of On the Waterfront.
0: Okay. Uh, right. But, it, but if somebody wants to color... Citizen Kane, I mean, that wasn't in that no. library. No. But I'm just no. he he wanted to colorize everything.
1: He did, and I would say that if he was doing it in order to create a market for that film that otherwise wouldn't exist good on you right. yeah. I mean it doesn't it's not harming anything it's like people who say oh how can they tear down that beautiful old house well you want to write the six million dollar check to the guy who owns it who then then write it we, we live in a capitalist world you may not like it but it's the fact
0: so as capitalists you're telling, telling them me, they need I'm to telling buy you,
1: the you if you buy this you will go from 40 percent of the library titles to 60. No one will ever be able to stock. At this point, DVD was at its pe- height. Uh-uh. Uh, other forms of distribution and HBO were still major. I said, nobody can- There's
0: no Blu-ray yet. There's only DVD or that's coming?
1: Blu-ray, well, that's, that's another story I'll tell you about, which, uh, once again, I wasn't listened to. <laughs> so at this point in 2005... The valuation that was put on the MGM library, we were told we would have to match financial players. And in years of doing corporate acquisitions, there's a simple rule. The guy who's in it just for the money, you can always beat if you have a strategic reason. Because you get the money, the same money that he gets, but you have a strategy that's benefited. So if you go from owning 40% of the libraries in the world to 60%, You have market power that can't be beat. And it's acquired in a way that the uh, Justice Department won't claim antitrust usually. Uh I learned over the years dealing with antitrust lawyers, you can say we are the leading company. You can never say we're the dominant company. That gets you in trouble with the antitrust people. And so in this case, I am... Doing something that I'm occasionally known to do—pounding the table. You gotta buy it. We've really? Gotta, yeah, I said wait, this is just—it's—it it is you know, not—it's not even to be considered. And at that point, now, as it happened, we were outbid by Sony as the junior partner to a bunch of hedge funds and. Private equity people, Texas Pacific Group, etc., and they came up with five billion dollars for the library.
0: What was your number? Well, what I had said think? we
1: should top whatever it is, but um. we were. I think we we stopped out at four and a half. Huh. And part of this gets into turf wars because the people in the film side already were feeling that the home video side was outranking them because they were bringing in way more money, right. and they didn't want to increase our dominant or de- dependence on secondary market which at home video is it's not the primary market right. which is making movies of course it made gave you more mo- money with which to make movies but they um, uh, short-sightedness is a sort of operating principle of hollywood
0: it's almost identical to the weinstein brothers where the miramax division isn't making any money and his brother's earning dimension, dimension is run- which yes, is making yes, tons of money right. and the the tons of money is helping make the little movies right. that are Breaking well, even there, or getting an Oscar. There, or. That's,
1: thats very interesting because this relates to an article I read in yesterday's New York Times, oh. which was about what it was happened. It was, it was, I think, one of the many coverages of the death of Bob Gottlieb, the great editor at, at uh, Random House and, uh-huh. then, and then on at the successor companies. And it said that in publishing the use, and this is movies apply here too, Yes, of course you have losers, but they're paid for by the winners and the ultimate winning comes unlike in baseball, it's not batting average, it's times at bat. Uh-huh. You need the more times at bat you get the more likely you are to have the one and and one enormous hit. I mean a home run's a home run, but a movie that grosses 400 million dollars beats a lot of movies that lose 50. Right. And but the fact is that when people are making these judgments about what should we or shouldn't we make it, they're making it based on false information. What they've done is they go out to the guy who's in charge of Germany and the guy who's in charge of of television and then HBO and so forth and say, give me your estimate of what it's worth. They put it all together, and it's generally wrong because you got ten different people with ten different opinions and maybe they average themselves out.
0: So uh, you get aced by Sony and a bunch of hedge, hedge funds, funds for $5 right, billion, billion dollars
1: and... Does that end up being a good deal? No, not for them. To prove me, I would like to say, even when I'm wrong, I'm right. Uh, I was wrong then because the Sony hedge fund group ended up having been wiped out. They bought it with $2 billion of equity and $3 billion of debt. When the value of it was perceived by the banks... That had provided the three billion, to be clo- dangerously close to three billion, they forced them. They took it over. They uh, called the note. Call, called the note in oh. essence, and uh, they were their two billion was wiped out. The people who retained it were the bondholders, etc., who had put up the three billion. Uh, last year, Amazon paid eight billion for the library. So Roger was right. Uh-huh. <laughs> just stick with a film library. You just have you got to have, patience. You yeah, gotta have okay. patience.
0: Right idea, wrong team.
1: Yeah. Wrong t- wrong timing. Oh yeah. Wrong timing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, I hope this doesn't sound like half the time I'm right and the other half the time I only appear to be wrong. <laughs> there are many times where I was flat out wrong. No,
0: we'll edit this so the times you're right, we'll just take out. So you'll just always be
1: wrong. Well, it's interesting. (laughs) The most dangerous column I ever wrote for Variety came in 2001 when young Bronfman, uh, Edgar Jr. Uh Edgar Jr. Bromfman had bought Universal Music at a very high price, just as the internet was cratering the music business. And I wrote a column that said, He's not wrong, he's just early. Hang in there, the music business will, thanks to the internet, end up being more valuable than it ever was selling little discs. Hmm. Well, it took me 20 fucking years to be right, but I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, whoever thought the downloads would be as now. Right. They're part of the reason they're so profitable is because they had different royalty structures and this is they're terrible for the artists. The artists get yeah. penn- the artists get pennies and and the loud ones
0: like Taylor right. Swift say I'm not going to mm-hmm. let my content right. be on Spotify yeah. right. or I'm not going to let my po- and are they winning for the most part are the artists getting a bigger share now
1: they are if you're Taylor what? Swift yeah wow but they're're they're, they're not if you're Joe's garage band right yeah, yeah. and in 1980. I went into David Horowitz, who was the executive overseeing the music division. He was not a music expert, but he was a good business, smart businessman. And I said, We got to buy a concert promoter so we can get double dip, be on one side and the other side too, and we can work out the conflicts of interest. When I say that, I'm reminded of Tom Pollack. Tom Pollack, who became head of Universal Pictures and was a very, and correctly respected Hollywood executive. Before he had been that, he was one of the top lawyers in Hollywood, a firm called Pollock, Bloom, and Deckham. So the idea of acquiring a concert promoter came up against um, Mr. Horowitz saying, Roger, you understand how nervous being in the music business makes us as a public company. You, any idea how thoroughly corrupt the concert promotion business is? It's all about
0: Tom Parker. It's yeah, all okay, Colonel Parker. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. So I don't see that as something that a law-abiding um, public company can do. And here's the thing about, which I don't think too many people understand, about government regulation of business. Any businessman who's got both ethics and brains is in favor of government regulation uh-huh. because it keeps you from being subject to competition by cheaters. Uh-huh. Cheaters can always have a lower cost of doing business than you. And you're if you are ethical or simply law-abiding, uh, problems that never affected, affected Donald Trump, uh, you just simply are at very, very much down down play. Which
0: is not to say they don't find the occasional loophole and take
1: advantage of certain things that That's the job of the highest paid people in the business. <laughs> okay. The most important person at Warner was our tax guy. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say he's now deceased, so I won't mention but I don't have to mention his name. It's not important. But I ah, guess but was what he always had to ah, say. I guess ah, yes, but you know there's a provision in the tax law and in fact most business decisions end up either being totally about taxes or partially about oh. taxes. But taxes are always an issue. And this guy, oh, well, I'll mention his name, Ed Booty, He was really smart uh, and uh, not not disturbed by finding loopholes. That was his job. <laughs> right. And at one point, <clears throat> um, we were looking at some acquisition, and everything made sense except it was going to be a great thing with store broadcasting, in fact. Uh, but we couldn't solve a tax problem. At the same time, What did they have, by the way? What was that called? They They owned a bunch of broadcast stations, which we didn't care about, and a couple hundred thousand cable subscribers, which we very much wanted, including in Boston. Yeah. And uh, they'd started in Detroit, if I recall. And I went in saying, well, we'll buy the company, We'll sell off the broadcasting, which we don't want. We'll end up having created the cable at $500 a subscriber when they're going for $1,000 a subscriber. I, it all plotted out until Steve said, tell me, Roger, what about the capital gains taxes on selling off the broadcast properties? I suspect they're on the books at a zero cost. He was right. Mm. And I couldn't it solve that problem. Now, solving tax problems is... The job usually of specialists who are either called accountants or lawyers, and I was in my time at Carolco, if I told you it was, I won't say it was less than honest company, I would say it was the Netherlands Antilles subsidiary of a Dutch company, which was the subsidiary of a Swiss company, so you take it from there. (laughs) And we the The taxation thing, Carol Coe was actually got its name because the lawyer in Panama took off a shelf company name. We got the Barbara Coe, Jane Coe. You, how about Carol Coe? Yeah, Yeah. take it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And there might have been somebody honest in that group, but it was it seemed unlikely.
1: Well, the person who was most often honest in the group was me, (laughs) and it made me
0: The, the black sheep of the company. Well,
1: sometimes unpopular. Oh Roger, we're going to have to listen to your your, your liberal bullshit again. Uh, I said, no, I'm trying to keep you guys out of jail. I was
0: going to say my liberal bullshit is keeping us. Yes, yes. Well, my late, my late
1: father-in-law, who was a brilliant and highly ethical lawyer, but had such people as Josephie Levine, uh, Dino De Laurentiis the, as clients, and I once said to him, Lee, how can someone of your impeccable ethical sense represents such criminals. That's why they need me." <laughs> <laughs> I said that as, in, the, in the memorial service at his as funeral. So it is interesting that as the head of public relations, if I wanted to get a point across that I deep down thought was an issue of ethics, I never presented it that way. I said, Yeah, it's going to work in the short run, but in the long run, it's going to cost us money.
0: But in the long run, you were right because there was no live nation when you said, "Let's get into the into this business." And now there are many of them, or several. Well, there's
1: there's one that's a multi multi billion dollar company, Uh, and so I think the fact is that ethical issues in the music, the record, the record business, as we called it then, went away because. The ethics came in in, in in what was called payola, bribing radio stations to play your songs, your music, your music. That was no longer a way that things were promoted. And so once it became a matter of getting people out on tour was how you promoted music. And getting people out on tour was a very, very profitable business that we weren't in. And I wanted to say, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, let's go. And uh, the idea that they were slightly less ethical than the businesses we were in, I thought was a somewhat petty objection. I think we. Could... So
0: we started this conversation talking about uh, the money that could be made from catalogs and from movie inventory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, we know from the last 20 or 5 or 30 years that those catalogs have been sold over and over and over again and the ones that make the news are the music catalog of the Beatles which Michael Jackson owned for a little while i guess where we sit now in 2023 with no new technology coming that we're aware of that'll, you're, you're, you're that'll be like a you're DVD. excluding streaming well no i'm saying from this day forward oh. where are you going to make money in the in in the business?
1: If I knew that, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be out <laughs> making billions. Okay. The answer is we don't know.
0: But there's no DVD or Blu ray or Laserdisc coming. That's all dead, right? We the, don't.
1: The thing business is over. It's, it's a stream of, of electrons or whatever it is we get over the internet. Right. And I will tell you, give you an example. Do you know which entertainment business is by far the biggest and it's not movies? It's not television, it's not music. Video games, way bigger. Oh yeah, we've been there. Now, well, we've been there except in 1984, as I stood next to Steve as we were selling the remains, the, the the carcass of Atari. Uh, to Jack Tremiel, who I think I've described earlier as a graduate of the Auschwitz School of Business Administration, mm-hmm. uh, was a t- he was a tough guy. He <laughs> didn't make much of Atari, though. There was not much to make left. That when the internet came along, video games was a business of selling something called consoles and cartridges. Well, now all of a sudden, I thought, well, we get someone to pay $400 for uh, the console and thirty dollars each for the cartridges. How much are we gonna get for a stream of electrons? Turns out way more than we ever got for anything. Because once you sold, you remember remember Farmville, one of the early uh, online things. Yeah, where you
0: could make a little farm or yes, a well little exactly. Cow.
1: They pioneered the concept. Oh, you want to buy a cow? That's twenty cents. You want uh-huh. to buy a barn? That's a dollar. I mean, they ended up selling you. Nothing, and today we have and something. Doing a good job Today that. we have something called NFTs, uh-huh. and people have actually bid twenty-five million dollars at Sotheby's for a friggin' F- NFT, which is nothing but makes them happy. Right. Although that market has kind of crashed, and for yeah, some... no, no. It, 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 um, when people talk to me about crypto, I say, "Look, I don't know when it's going to crash. I don't know how it's going to crash." do I know that it will crash? 5,000 years of financial history tell you that. I don't need to bore you by talking about tulip bulbs. I don't need to talk to you about gold at various times and so forth. This, it is a f- false scarcity. Only De Beers has actually kept Created a false scarcity and made it last for 150 for, years
0: to, for diamonds for, for diamonds for jewelry for, for yeah. diamonds. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I
1: thought the, no,
0: no. The, well, I'm just explaining. Yeah, to right. People. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, if it's if the future is streaming, are we not going to have bookcases anymore? Are we not going to own something that has the liner notes that explains the the bonus features on the DVD
1: or on the on whatever the next thing is? No, bec- I think we are going to have them because. New technologies, new methods of distribution and presentation do not eliminate the prior ones. I mean, let's go back to 1965 at the height of the three-network television business. What would people have given you for radio stations then? Virtually nothing. It was going to be, it's over. Who's, who's going to listen to the radio? The answer is a bigger business today than it ever was. May not be quite as profitable, but it's, it's fine. Uh, so that the fact is that new technologies shove old ones to the rear, but they don't, they don't knock them out of the picture. And then they end up having a life of their own, because people have, you know, find the ways. I mean, I, I thought, where I've been totally wrong, I thought that cable TV would make the networks obsolete. That people didn't want ads; they wanted ad-free programming. And I watched as the very, very brilliant um, guy who ran CBS, Les Moonves, came along and thought of something that nobody had thought of. As cable was getting more and more of a share of the market from the the over-the-air broadcasters, he said, "You know." we charge our affiliates for the programming. They don't get it for free, they have to pay for it. Why should the networks be able to carry our signals for free? And he ended up imposing monthly fees just as ESPN and CNN paid the cable companies for coverage or they paid them for the programming. Look at it either way. CBS said, cable companies, you want to carry our signal? Uh, Because the law said that they were obligated to offer it, but they weren't obligated to offer it for free. Mm -hmm. And so he came up with making the cable companies pay for the right to have CBS, ABC, and NBC. Well, what they were worth was invaluable because if you couldn't tell somebody, subscribe from for cable, and you'll get 187 channels, but you won't get ABC, CBS, and NBC, they'll say, forget it. Right. So they had them over a barrel. Yeah.
0: That was true for like direct tv and some of those satellite services mm-hmm. for, a while. for a while and some of them had cbs and abc but not nbc and
1: it was yeah well they were if they were in fights over carriage fees for a while they'd have to say i'm very sorry but you're not going to get channel two for the next six months right until right. we, we work things out and i had the great good fortune of looking over the shoulder of smart and powerful people i was there able to see them when they were doing the machinations that led to the negotiations, that led to the pricing, that led to the issues. And I could see how things, not evened out, but where the leverage was. And uh, there's a man who most people wouldn't recognize the name, John Malone. But John Malone, anyone who's been involved in anything to do with media knows that he is the most brilliant operator in the cable business. And he is a financial genius. And if you were to go back through 87 recapitalization sales, spinoffs, et cetera, and say, okay, where's John Malone's money? And I put my money there and I follow him through each iteration as he buys, sells, conglomerates, et cetera. If you started with $10,000, you'd better than you'd, Warren you'd, Buffett. You'd be equal. Maybe, yeah. Maybe equal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean Warren Buffett is an amazing story and once again I don't want my wife to hear this I will confess that in 1960 Terry stop listening at this point please. Right. 1967 I was a junior analyst on Wall Street working at a very the fine old firm of Wood Struthers and Winthrop and one of my associates a man named Henry Brandt told me he was buying stock in a woolen mill. I said, is that a good business? He said, no, but there's this company called Berkshire Hathaway. And the smartest guy I know is this genius out in Omaha. And he's bought the company and he's going to use it as the base for his business. You know, people who have not had access to good information do not need to be excoriated for not getting rich. Those who've had access to great information and haven't yet turned it into a to a centimillionaire fortune do get excoriated and quite properly, I, I confess. But as my column Variety went, it's only money, <laughs> and I don't need I don't need to be rich. I just need to live as if I were. Why do you
0: think Warren Buffett has always avoided the entertainment industry? Because
1: he knows that he can't. Projected with clarity. There's not clarity there. New technologies come in. Man, it's so management dependent. When I read that U.S. Steel has a new president, oh boy, the stock went up. I said the president of U.S. Steel doesn't matter, doesn't he? Doesn't can be one guy in a, in a Fabian Bach rock portrait versus another. They're all the same. Who runs entertainment companies? It is the same. They're different. They're very different. And the reason it's different and this is what steve ross understood and why he so grossly overpaid his subordinates if you're in the steel industry your threat to leave us steel and start your own steel company has zero value no one no one, they say good luck charlie yeah your threat in the music bill steel yeah, yeah right the the threat in the music or the movie or the cable business our cable head of cable, lovely, lovely, gentleman named Gus Hauser, left being employed when he was only earning six or seven or eight million dollars a year, and went off on his own and bought up cable companies at a point in the eighties, and we remained good friends long after he left Warner. Uh, at a point in the eighties where it looked like the play was over, the business had taken off, etc. We didn't know it was one third of the way to where it was going to go. We hoped but we didn't know it. And uh, he retired with $600 million that he'd made on his own. However, it wasn't enough to overcome the fact that he was married to Rita Hauser, who was <laughs> who was no walk on the beach. Okay. But I think the, I think they're both dead. But we digress. But I think they're both dead, so it's
0: okay. Uh, it does strike me that Buffett had, whether he wanted to be in the business or not, with Coca-Cola, he owned uh, some entertainment entities, right? Coca-Cola owned yes, Columbia by, not, TriStar for a for while. For a while, or, yeah.
1: to, to their regret. Yeah, They didn't make money from it. They, no, they ended up, I think, doing okay, because when they bought it, it came with that block front building on Fifth Avenue between 52nd and 53rd, 53rd and 54th, I forget which. Yeah. Yeah. And uh,
0: realist- 56th and 57th, I think, which is where no, no,
1: 50, there was a... 54th and 55th. Okay. It, it was below the Disney store ended up being in that building when Disney ended up buying out. Uh, there was a nice uh, screening Pictures. room in that building. Yes, very okay. nice screening room. Uh, and um, uh, the
0: fact is that the that real estate saved them that building. I don't think, it, or things like it, that. It, that it, it
1: offset it, it offset part of what might have been a loss, but I don't think. But again, I don't think. Uh, I don't think their experience with Columbia Pictures was a losing one. It was just not as successful as they'd hoped. Uh, so, that uh, remember. So,
0: smart, boring guys like Warren Buffett have been staying away from investments in entertainment for a long time and probably always will.
1: Uh, yes, because he doesn't like businesses in which market share is evanescent. I've seen Paramount Pictures go in one year from the number one studio to the number seven and losing serious money. Warner always was in the top three, but we never went below three. But there was a huge difference between three and one. Sure. And in fact, I always said that the most important day in the year for a studio executive was January 6th. They said, why January 6th? Long before the the infamous January 6th. So that's when the first weekly Hollywood reporter and variety come out with the market share of each studio. And even though gross is not the same as net, and you can gross without making serious money, the what people know is how much you grossed, and that is what gives you your your reputation. So that if you can... If you're looking to leave one job to go to another, uh, oh he was he was running the number two studio running the number one even better uh, but it didn't necessarily mean you'd performed. Uh, Amy Pascal um, sure. who was head of Sony Pictures Entertainment for 12 years, uh, was paid probably between six and ten million dollars a year. So I decided to take the um, 10Ks, the the annual filings with the SEC of companies, and I was going to use my self-taught accounting skills. If someone asked me what my proudest claim in life is, that I took one night school course at the New York Institute of Finance in accounting. I never had an accounting degree, and I ended up the chief financial officer of two different New York Stock Exchange companies, and I had accountants who worked for me. And one of them, a lovely guy, Rod Trovinger, once said, Roger, how do you do it? I said, how do I do what? He said, I come in, I show you a mass of figures on a spreadsheet, and you go, that one doesn't look right. What, what do you, what, how do you, I've, I've worked hours and hours to produce a spreadsheet, and it turns out you're right, that was a mistake. I said, I know how things should look. I don't know how they got there. I said, you have the margins going down in year four, and I know the assumptions that go into it will never let the margins go down, so something has to be wrong. I like to brag about my lack of bragging, but it's not always true, obviously, <laughs> because I end up being very, very frank about my failings and my mistakes, but I also do not wish that to lead people to think that I didn't have my talents and successes. As I've said in this whole podcast episode thing. The most important thing is to have fun. If you're having fun, you're probably doing something right. And Steve Ross had that as a mantra, because I had been working at the company one month when he walked by my office, waved, and said, hi, Roger. How are you doing? Are you having fun? And I said, I'm having a wonderful time. He said, great. That means you're doing it right. Five as, are, as, as are we all. As five years later on the something that I thought was of interest only to be and maybe the HR department, my fifth anniversary of joining the company, I got a handwritten note, Dear Roger, Are You Still Having Fun? Signed, Steve. That's why you were ready to kill for the guy, that kind of, of wonderful personal attention, which is... Whether it doesn't exist anymore in business, I don't know. But I think the, the dominance of technology and the dominance of finance has taken most of the personal element out of business relationships. The guy who absolutely knows everything about technology has an advantage. The guy who knows all the tricky ins and outs of financial engineering has an advantage. And the guy who knows how to treat people and how to get them to do their best job is a somewhat distant third.
0: If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the book is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli's is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Electric app. become a leader worth
1: following subscribe today electric acid. electric acid, electric acid.